and welcome back to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and I'm here today with Dr. Aisha Ahmad, who's a lecturer in global health at St. George's University of London. And we're here today to talk about the connection between epistemic justice and mental health during humanitarian crises. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. So hi, and thanks so much for, for joining. No, thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work, please? Okay. Thank, yes, of course. So I'm a lecturer in global health, um, but actually my background is quite uh, unexpected uh, how I ended up in global health. So initially I was a philosopher and specialized in medical ethics. Um, I also studied psychoanalysis at the side and specialized in trauma. And I always had a strong interest uh, in trauma and uh, conflict, particularly understanding how women survive conflict, um, given the stories that I was exposed to when I was younger. Um, But I didn't really know that was a field until I progressed in my career, and that's how I um, was led to global health. Uh, When I started working in global health, About four years ago, I then um, had the opportunity to specialize and develop some research proposals to um, work on developing trauma therapeutic interventions in chronic conflict or humanitarian settings. So primarily the work is uh, in Afghanistan, but we currently um, are working in uh, Kashmir and also in Turkey and um, some uh, other projects also in South Africa. Obviously, a big theme of um, our overarching project, which you're a collaborator on, um, is this idea of epistemic injustice. So could you tell us a little bit about the connection between epistemic justice and mental health and psychological suffering that happens during and after humanitarian crises and war? And why it's an important issue, please. Yes, so the trauma intervention that we've been working on is based on traditional storytelling. And... uh, The aim of having a trauma therapeutic intervention that draws on existing literary and poetry resources in in the countries we work on, which have very rich storytelling traditions. Um, There's an important symbolism there between the voices that we hear and the voices that are spoken. So um, in conflict, um, there can be systematic silencing of women's stories of suffering, but also from the more structural, therapeutic, biomedical frameworks that have been designed primarily in Western populations, in non-conflict settings. Um, their frameworks and understandings about how to conceptualize um, a woman's narrative or um, the agency of a woman or normative judgments about a voice. We often hear phrases such as giving voice to the voiceless. So there's an assumption that those women do not even have a voice. Um, but actually there's a huge difference between, um, a crucial difference between being silent and being silenced. So part of the response to, to this um, interaction between epistemic injustice and mental health was to understand um, concepts of suffering in different contexts, but also to have for the women to, to 
be the agents of their own stories and the stories that they describe um, rather than the form formulating questions that focus on particular aspects of what we perceive to be suffering. So ra rather than asking for um, narratives of violence to be um, to be relayed and then communicated globally, we want to understand more about um, the meaning of that suffering to, to women and the stories that they consider to be the most important relating to their lives. And once you have those stories, is is the idea um, that the storytelling itself is a therapeutic mechanism or and or is it that once we hear these stories that can hopefully better inform the therapeutic interventions that will be put in place? Well, ideally both. So the stories are supposed to um, frame in suffering as a form of story. So if we look at some of the phrases, for example, in Pashtur and Dari about how if somebody is perceived by another person to be suffering, they might be um, gifted some words which translate to your sorrow is going to make you a storyteller. So it's about understanding um, the integration of suffering into your into your life, but how to um, how to frame that as a story and the meaning that that story can have for the person, even if it's traumatic. Um, so it's a way of having a non-medicalized understanding of suffering in those contexts. So there's a therapeutic aspect there um, about the uh, about the story, but also then drawing on existing resources. So in countries like Afghanistan, for example, there's a extremely rich cultural heritage um, for for centuries of the role of poetry and stories um, that are passed down for generations and generations. Conflict interrupts this flow, um, but um, stories become an important part of reference in the society and there are in part of the intervention is referring, for example, in in focus groups using poems from famous female poets who've experienced violence and have translated that into a poem, for example, then um, as a as a, a prompt or a way to be able to reflect on and relate it to your own story. So developing a connection there, so your story is not so much in isolation. And you mentioned there uh, that you have uh, workshops and, and groups, but you also mentioned the sort of intergenerational storytelling that is very important. So when you use the word storytelling, what does that involve, the communicative aspect there? What, what does that involve? Yeah, so we've, we've had several projects now based on storytelling, and the aim is to... to um, that the intervention is going to be contextualized depending on where you are working. So the work that we initially did in Afghanistan, um, that was involving semi-structured life narrative interviews, but we asked questions such as, can you tell us a story, a song or a poem um, that you remember from your childhood? And the, the woman would um, talk about those stories and where they heard those stories, what, why they were remembering them, um, what stories they remembered or referred to in the times that they were suffering, um, ask them about stories of other people that they who have suffered, why do they perceive 
um, that to be a story of suffering. So we use that structure to understand the, the meaning of a story more. But also then, um, for example, in the, the work with Share, um, which is our storytelling for health, um, acknowledgement, expression and recovery, which is now our current project. We're working with Kashmir. There we, we've worked with our colleagues to develop a particular intervention that's specific to that context. And some of the uh, different forms of applying storytelling in that context, but some of that form um, involves women to to try to scribe the continuation of their story to uh, as a way to find um, a agency in a context where the structural violence and the conflict has um, been very restrictive to the stories that they can uh, live themselves. So you mentioned there the sort of uh, systematic um, restriction on women's voices or stories. So to me, that sounds like the way that we treat epistemic injustice, the way we look at it, there's sort of these two components. The first being um, that we don't assign enough sort of credit to the to the speaker, the other being that there's this language missing around the speaker's mm-hmm. experience, so that there's a mismatch between the speaker and the, the listener. So your projects, to me, it sounds like you're tackling or hoping to tackle both of those aspects where you're both giving, well, giving voice to the silenced, um, which I guess is that phrase that you're not too fond of, or magnifying the voice of the silenced, um, and also trying to get a better language and understanding of their experiences. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't say that we are given voice or magnifying the voice. Okay. The voice is already there, the voice is already magnified, but mm-hmm. the structures around that voice are what creates a silencing. So part of the, this, these interventions are to deconstruct those structures of silencing. So there, there's two aspects, one from the psychological therapeutic aspect. So in, if we look at the contemporary psychological therapies that are used, they rely on disclosures of suffering. Um, you have to disclose violence that you've experienced in order to be referred to the relevant um, resources and health um, support. The psychological assessments require your disclosure, your testimony in order to you know, um, analyze and see the threads of your what then becomes classified as your symptomology to lead to a diagnosis. So we want to move away from that medicalization, that almost false disclosure of um, a particular view of what a narrative is, that it's something that's happened in your past, impacting on your present and creating a foreboding for your future. So you're trying to move away from that um, at the same time as also creating spaces within society. So if you have a society where your regime has banned women from reciting poetry, even having a space within um, a very secure location where women can speak their poetry, that is a symbolization. And because this work is, when we're thinking about epistemic injustice in the context of conflict and conflict-related violence, gender-based violence and psychological trauma resulting from that, then we, we also have to think, well, the, the suffering is not born from the woman themselves. If you reduce the woman to a victim and if you reduce her suffering to symptoms, then it becomes a very pathological view of trauma. We are trying to understand the trauma that's mediated within a society um, so in order to treat the, the trauma of a woman, we also have to treat the society. So it in, involves 
uh, individualized therapeutic intervention, but also interventions that have a societal symbolic space as well. You've touched on a on a couple of things there that should be changed or should be looked at differently. What's the overarching way forward or potential way forward that you think could help in addressing some of these these issues? I think fundamentally it comes down to an ethical reflection on the concepts that we use when we are prescribing um, other people's stories or other people's suffering. What are the inherent values that are part of the frameworks that we use to design psychological therapies with? Who is contributing to that design? What are the ethical implications and assumptions when those when a biomedical framework is employed and implemented in these contexts where we are working in. So I think it, it fundamentally comes from we need to be very critical from an ethical perspective, first of all, about the concepts and where those concepts are come from, because that's where uh, the, this gap, where the, the stem of the epistemic justice um, is. Okay, so obviously this has been so much about storytelling and voices and learning. Um, so if people do want to learn more, what kind of resources could you recommend? What are the voices that people should be listening to and learning more about? For that, I'd recommend actually referring to literature of particular countries, but being very mindful who is the authors. You will see um, very high-profile biographies um, um, or even autobiographies, but think uh, talking, depicting about violence that has been experienced, but thinking about, well... Who, who has written this? Who has narrated this person's story? Um, you will see stories that are of... Um, actually, there's, there's one at the moment of a, a woman in Pakistan called Aisha. Um, and she she's in the UK, but she's relating the... exploring her family's story of violence. But it's narrated... The book is written by um, a British man. It's not written by Aisha herself. So thinking about actually trying to access... Even if it's folklore or traditional stories or poetry, at least those are authentic voices. And then you can see what is being mirrored in those words that was from that, from that context. And I think that's where, more where we find that truth and the antidote to epistemic injustice than um, think, and thinking critically about the, the sources where we, we read for um, information. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your voice uh, with us in this episode. It was very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again on the first Monday of the month for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.